Well, church family, it is certainly such a blessing and a joy to be back home and to be among you all and to be able to proclaim to you God's word. Uh, One thing that I've come to realize that I love so much about Sheridan Hills, but also about South Florida in general, is all of the cultural diversity that is all around us. Uh, We have people from all kinds of different countries, from different regions and ethnic backgrounds. And we also have, here in the life of the church, members who are uh, much older in life, and we also have members who are much younger. And all these things are so beautiful to me. Yet despite all of these differences, I'm confident that we all share at least one thing in common. And of course, we share Christ in common. But other than that, we all share the need to be encouraged. From time to time, we all need encouragement. I can remember one time in my life, particularly about two years ago, I had just come home from my first semester being away at college in Kentucky. And while that time was an awesome time in my life, I met so many great uh, friends and so many great people and got plugged in at my my church there. Uh, The truth is, I was very lonely. And just being away from home, I was extremely homesick, and it was certainly a difficult time in my life. I remember I came back, and the first Sunday I came back here to Sheridan Hills, I remember Pastor Lucas, wherever he is, scheduled me to play in the Cajon, and I was so excited to play Cajon. Uh, I've been longing to serve in church, and it was just a great moment. And I remember we played the first few songs, and then Pastor Andrew came up and you know, did his thing of uh, you know, leading us in the announcements and encouraging us. And, and then he went to pray. And as Pastor Andrew prayed, I remember Lucas came over to me and he simply put his hand on my shoulder. And I just remember at that time and in that moment, I just felt an overwhelming amount of encouragement an overwhelming amount of joy and acceptance. And that one little act, that one little gesture was exactly what I needed in that time of life. And I'm sure that we can all recall different times in your life when you yourself were in a great need of encouragement and when the Lord provided that encouragement at the proper time to reassure our hearts. And perhaps this morning, you yourself are in great need of encouragement. Perhaps this morning you are extremely discouraged. Uh, Hardships and trials of life has just beaten you down, and you need a word of encouragement. Well, as we continue in our study of 1 John, we come to a point in the letter in which John takes us aside, and like a loving father, he is going to tenderly put his hand on our shoulder, and he's going to offer us words of encouragement. So if you would, I would like to invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. So it's 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. You see, for some time now, John has been unfolding what he means by his main premise in chapter 1, verse 5, which Pastor Andrew has continued to point us to. And his main premise is this, that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
And as a result of this, as he is unfolding this, he has said some pretty difficult and weighty things, hasn't he? And perhaps you yourself have kind of felt some of the weight of these statements. And I'm going to read a couple of these to you, and I think they're going to be on the screen in front of you. He has said things like, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's 1 John 1.6. Or how about this one? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8. Or as Pastor Lucas preached last week, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 1 John 2.9. And so in the face of these difficult sayings, it's almost as if John is beginning to worry. He's beginning to worry that those who are true believers are beginning to question whether they themselves are truly in the faith. And so he's going to stop everything he's doing. He's going to stop his entire line of argument in order to do a few things. And you can fill this out on your handout. This is John's threefold purpose. The first thing John wants to do in this section is he wants to offer encouragement to believers. He wants to offer encouragement to believers. The second thing John wants us to do is he wants to reassure believers of their standing with God. He wants to reassure believers of their standing with God. And then finally, in case of if believers are beginning to worry whether they are able to really walk in the light and truly follow Christ's commandments, he wants to remind them that they have all that they need in Christ in order to obey and walk in the light. And so as we come to this passage, almost immediately, the first thing that should stand out to us and the first thing that we notice is that the text here looks different than, other, than the rest of the text in 1 John. Right? The rest of the text in 1 John is just the typical uh, like a book format. But then we come to verse 12, and now we begin to see things look differently. There is wider margins. There is more indentations. And so why is that? Well, whenever you see Scripture formatted in that way, what it's, what it's showing us is this is poetry. We're actually going to look at this morning at a poem. Verses 12 through 14 is a poem by John. And so what we want to ask is, is why, why a poem? Why is John going from writing his, his regular letter into poetry? And we think, you know, is he kind of going crazy? Is he just kind of forgot what he's talking about? Of course not, right? John, this is deliberate. This is a deliberate move from the Apostle John. And as Pastor Andrew has continued to remind us, uh, this letter is artistic. And it's, very, it's crafted in a beautiful way. And this is part of that beautiful theme of artistry that we see in 1 John. So why, why poetry? Why is he doing this? Well, have you ever received or written a poem to someone you love? Right? Poem, poems are um, a vehicle that is used to express affection. It's a vehicle that is intimate to express love and affection and joy and encouragement. And so John here is choosing to use a poem in order to write a heartfelt um, encouragement to his beloved children, to communicate to them his deep affection for them. So that's why he's writing in poetry. Now let me ask you this. 
Have you ever tried reading someone else's love letters or poems? I remember one time my, uh, my mom read to us one of her you know, poems that she, read to, that she wrote to my dad in high school, and uh, it was weird. It was really weird for me. <laughs> I mean, it was beautiful, obviously, for them and their context and in their relationship. You know, Anna and I were like, what is this? Like, why? What is this weird poem? And so for, for the reason why it's weird is because we were not intended in that uh, communication, right? We are kind of outsiders looking in, and of course it's going to be strange, right? This is between uh, a close, beautiful relationship. And so you may be like, you may be thinking, where am I going with this? Am I just going to give like a lecture on poetry? No. No, I'm not, not saying that. This is where I'm going with this. In a similar way, this poem is for the church, right? In most immediate context, John is writing this poem to the churches in modern-day Turkey around AD 90, but ultimately, this poem is for the church universal. This is for all Christians at all times, and so, what this means is, is if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, then this is not um, going to be a poem that you were included in. And we would love for you to listen in. We would love for you to, to hear what John has to say. But this poem is, does not pertain to you. You are going to feel kind of like an outsider in this. And we want to say that we eagerly want you to join us. We eagerly want you to come to know Christ and to be a part of this with us. But this poem and this section that we're about to read is for the people of God. This is for those who are in Christ. And so before we read the text, I want you to notice the way that this section is laid out. So if you would see in your handout, and I believe on the screen in front of you, John's poem verses 12 through 14, consists in two cycles. And so in each cycle, we are going to see three groups mentioned. The first group that, that uh, John is going to mention is little children. The second group is fathers. And the third group is young men. And then he's going to go ahead and repeat those groups again in the second cycle. And so... I'm going to explain the significance of these groups as we go on, but that is kind of the format of this structure. So before we read, let's go before the Lord one more time in prayer, and then we'll jump into the text. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are reminded that the one thing that we all need more than anything else this morning is to hear from you. And so, Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit to help us to receive these words of encouragement. Lord, apply these in our lives. Lord, I do, I do not know what is going on in everyone's life, but Lord, you do. And I pray that you would apply this in a special way to them. Lord, help me to simply be a vehicle of, of your message to them. And Lord, we pray that Christ would be exalted, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So as we discussed earlier, John is is writing this poem in order to provide God's children with encouragement and assurance in their faith. So overall, we are going to see that the main idea behind this text and the main idea of this sermon, and you can find this on your outline, is Christians find encouragement and assurance from our, our identity in Christ, which then motivates us to abide in the light. Christians find encouragement and assurance from our identity in Christ, which then motivates us to abide in the light. And so as he does this, he is going to address these three groups, little children, fathers, and young men. So who are these groups? Well, many uh, scholars and pastors have understood these categories uh, differently. Some of them have understood this to refer to three different stages in spiritual development. So in this view, you would have uh, baby Christians, you would have kind of younger Christians, and then you would have older, spiritually mature Christians. And while I certainly think that there is definitely an element of spiritual development being spoken about in these categories, I'm not entirely persuaded of this view. I'm not entirely uh, sure that that is what John has to say. I believe that the first group John mentions which he refers to as little children, actually refers to the whole church. So he's referring to all of us. So why do, why do I think that? Well, all throughout John's letter, and maybe it rings a bell in your mind, all throughout John's letter, about seven times, he uses this phrase, little children, to refer to the entire church. And I believe I've included those references in your, in your outline. And furthermore... I think that if John is referring to kind of a spiritual progression, then he wouldn't have ordered it in the way that he has ordered it. So he, he would have ordered it as children, young men, and then fathers, but instead he goes from little children, then fathers, and then young men. So I believe that the first group is addressing all Christians, that's all of us, but then Uh, I believe fathers and young men actually refer to two age groups within the life of the church. So fathers refers refers to older believers in the church, physically older believers, and young men refer to younger believers in the life of the church. And so that is my outline. My outline is first, encouragement for all believers. Second, encouragement for older believers. And third, encouragement for younger believers. So, all believers, older believers, younger believers. All right, so let us first, let's turn our attention to the first point, which is encouragement for all believers. As I just mentioned, all throughout John's letter, his favorite word to refer to the church is little children. In fact, John may have even picked this up from Jesus himself. Or we see in John 13, 33, that Jesus refers to his disciples as little children. And this term is a term of endearment, and it communicates the love that John has for the church. And as we're going to see shortly, it even communicates something of our status and our relationship before God. 
And so while John has a lot of difficult things to say throughout his letter, like we looked at earlier, his tone is consistently compassionate and gentle. And we see that in in the way he refers to us. So what does John want to encourage us with the church as a whole? What is his words of encouragement to us? Well, he wants us to be encouraged by two things. The first thing is, is he says, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Our sins have been forgiven. Secondly, he wants to encourage us because he says, we have, we know the Father. As Christians, we know the Father. If there is anything that can describe who we are as Christians, it is this, our sins have been forgiven. We do not pretend to be perfect or even to be holier than thou. Rather, as Christians, we know our sin more than anyone else, and we rejoice knowing that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. As Christians, we daily lay ourselves down before the throne of mercy and rejoice as we partake in the joy of being forgiven. You see, the single greatest need that every human being has is this. Our sins have made a separation between us and our God. Isaiah 59, 2. Scripture tells us that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all forsaken our Creator, who has created us for fellowship, and we've gone astray and we've rebelled against Him. Or as the prophet Jeremiah says, we have forsaken the fountain of living waters and instead have dug up for ourselves empty wells that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13 We know that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we rightly stand under the righteous wrath of God. Romans 3.23 Furthermore, we know that in of ourselves, we are totally, completely unable to rescue ourselves from our sin. Or again, the prophet Isaiah wrote that all of our so-called righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. It is impossible to cleanse ourselves from our sin. There is no way that we can possibly do it. But Isaiah also says something else. He says this, and this is from the Lord. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. In God's mercy and grace, He sent His Son, even while we were still sinners, to satisfy God's righteous demands so that we might have fellowship with Him and that we might be restored to the Father, that we have forgiveness of sins. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that the Father made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So John is reminding us that if we are in Christ, this is gloriously true of all of us. We have all received the forgiveness of our sins. And that alone is the greatest need we all have in our lives. And you may be thinking, wow, like that, was, that was a beautiful gospel presentation. That was great. Uh, but I thought you were addressing believers, not unbelievers. Well, of course, this is for believers. We constantly need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel. And that is what John is pointing us to. The greatest encouragement that we all have and that we should all take from is the gospel, that we are forgiven in Christ. 
And it is my prayer, and I hope it is your prayer as well, that we continue to grow more and more in awe of the gospel, that we continue to be astounded by its beauty and of what great lengths Christ has gone through. But this is even, this is crazier. Even more than that, John goes on to remind us that we know the Father, which, as shocking as that is, that's an even greater reality than being forgiven. John is saying there's something even greater than knowing your sins are forgiven, and that's that you know the Father. And I'll explain what I mean to that in a second. By telling us that we know the Father, John's desire is that we as God's children might know and be overcome by the fact that in Christ, our identity is no longer as sinners, but as adopted children of God. We have been adopted into God's family. And this is something that John himself is overcome by. In a few verses later in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, John says this, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are children of God. You see, as, as glorious as it is that we have been forgiven of our sins, the fact that we have been adopted as children of God is an even greater reality than that. J.I. Packer, in his famous uh, book, Knowing God, maybe you've, if you, you've read it, he says this, and this blew my mind. He says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. Listen to this but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. In Christ, our primary relationship with God goes from being God our judge to God our Father. Apart from knowing God as our loving, tender, heavenly Father who demonstrates His mercy towards us, we are left with a God who is great and who is mighty, to be sure, but not one who is kind and knowable, and who draws near to the brokenhearted. Or as one author put it, if God is not Father, He is certainly great, but He is not good. If God is powerful, but He is not for us, then we should be terrified of Him. But indeed, as our Father, He is for us and not against us. He is our loving Heavenly Father. And I'm aware that many of you, and it breaks my heart as I, as I was preparing for this, and even now, I'm aware that many of you, the thought of God as Father may feel foreign and even dreadful. I know that some of you may have had an earthly father who was nothing but a monster in your life and who only brought you sorrow. Or perhaps your father was just simply not there and abandoned you. I can vividly remember having a conversation which just shocked me in high school with two of my friends. And both of these friends had not good fathers. And I remember them telling me that the thought of God as father to them felt foreign and felt heavy because of all the negative baggage that was brought along with that. But friends... If this is you, let me encourage you that our Heavenly Father 
is nothing like our earthly fathers in the greatest sense. He is full of compassion and tender-hearted towards his children. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He looked at us even as we were still sinners, even as we hated him and loved us and was moved to compassion and sent his son so that we might be redeemed and brought back to him. Brothers and sisters, if you have any doubt of the Father's character, any doubt whatsoever, I would invite you to look at his son. Look at Jesus. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Just think of what great lengths Christ went through that he might redeem us. He left the perfect fellowship he had with the Father in heaven and with the Spirit, and he took on human flesh. And he faced suffering, and ultimately he went to the cross and received the wrath of God for us and rose again, that, way, that we might be restored to a right relationship with God. That is from the Father. Christ is reflecting our Heavenly Father's loving character to us. Perhaps you struggle with assurance, or maybe you feel as if the Father is disappointed with you and no longer wants you. Friend, do not grieve the Father with such things. John is writing to comfort you and to remind you that you are his child. And if we are his children, he will never leave us or forsake us. One pastor by the name of John Owen wrote this, and this is also in your bulletin. This blows me away every time. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. He loved us so much that he sent his own son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's what John reminds us of in Second, First uh, John chapter two, verse one. And even more than that, we have an advocate before him, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right? Indeed, the author of Hebrews tells us that as his children, as God's children, we have joyful access to the throne of grace. We also know that the discipline we receive from him is out of the Father's love for us, not out of anger. He disciplines us in love because he is treating us as his precious children. Right? Hebrews 12, verse 10. Or maybe you are in a season of particular pain and suffering, and while you know God is good, you may sometimes find yourself wondering why God has allowed you to suffer for so long. I can't pretend to tell you the mind of God behind that, but what I can tell you is this. You are a child of the Father, and since you are one of His children, He cares deeply for you, more than you or I could even imagine. I want you to try to imagine right now I want you all to try to picture in your mind the most loving figure in your life, the most loving figure you've ever had in your life. This may be a parent, this may be a grandparent, perhaps it's a friend, perhaps it was a teacher or a spouse. I want you to picture that person in your mind. Think about how they care for you, how deeply they love you. Are you picturing that? 
Now I want you to imagine our loving Heavenly Father who is infinitely more loving and caring than that person. His love for us is overflowing and absolutely perfect in every way. He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all, as John is reminding us. Furthermore, not only does the Father deeply love you if you are His child, but He is also sovereign and in control of all things, including the situation that you are in right now. He sees you in your suffering. He knows your every need. And while we do not know why exactly He does what He does, we can trust that what He is doing is good and is out of love for us and is for our good. Indeed, we have the great promise, and perhaps you've memorized this, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. He is for us and not against us. So that's the first thing. All of us, let us be encouraged by the love of the Father. Let us be encouraged that we are in Him and that our sins are forgiven. And so after encouraging the whole church, the children of God, John turns his attention to the second group, to fathers. And so if you would look with me at point number two, this is encouragement for older believers. Encouragement for older believers. Now, out of a desire and a little bit of fear of not calling anyone old in this group, I'm going to intentionally leave these lines slightly vague with the hope that the Spirit will help you discern whether you are in this age group or not. And I'm going to try to not look at anybody. The term fathers generally refers to men and women in the church who are older and have been walking with the Lord for many years, as opposed to the next group that we're about to see of young men. But in this case, John is referring to, and I think this is in your your handout, John is referring to the spiritual fathers and mothers in the congregation who are entering into old age. These are those who are entering into old age. And so what, what does John have to say in order to encourage older believers? Well, John's primary encouragement for older believers is this. He says, they know him who was from the beginning. They know him who was from the beginning. And notice that John repeats that twice. He repeats that twice for emphasis. He's not just kind of mindlessly repeating himself. That's part of his artistic style, is he is repeating this for emphasis. And so the first question we want to ask ourselves is, is who is John referring to when he says, him who is from the beginning? So who is him who is from the beginning? And the second question is, why of all things does John choose to say this in order order to encourage older believers? So let's look at the first question first. Who is John referring to here in this passage? Well, it's most likely, and I think I I just heard it, that he is referring to Jesus, right? Not Not primarily the Father, though if he is referring to Jesus in a way, he's also referring to the Father. And so where do I get this? I get this from the opening words of John's letter. So if you would, I believe this is going to be on the screen in front of you. Let's look at the the first two verses of 1 John. John writes, and he says this, That which was from the beginning. I notice that. That which was from the beginning. 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. And so we see that here, John is most likely referring to Christ. And so what John is saying is, older men and, and women in the church, I want you to be encouraged because you know Jesus Christ, who was from the beginning. And if you know Christ, then you know the Father. For Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So now that we, that we know who John is referring to, let's look at the second question. Why, out of all things, is John choosing to encourage older believers with this bit of information? Why is he choosing to encourage older believers by saying that you know him who was from the beginning? And I think one pastor, his name is John Stott, is right when he says that the reference to him who is from the beginning primarily points to God's unchanging character. He is pointing us to God's unchanging character character. So why, why would this, that God is unchanging, why would that be a particular encouragement for this season of life? What is so encouraging that God is unchanging? I think it is encouraging to older believers because, and you can find this on your outline as well, because it is a reminder of God's faithfulness in the midst of constant change. It is a reminder of God's faithfulness in the midst of constant change. One thing that characterizes this stage of life is change. Things are no longer as they once were. Children leave the house and form a family of their own. Old friends grow even older and pass away. Our bodies begin to slow down and the vigor of youth begins to fade away. Cultural change speeds up faster and faster, and we begin to fear as if we are being left behind. And as we grow older, new anxieties begin to enter into our lives. Anxieties like, how am I going to care for my family? How am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to send my kids to college? Or even, who's going to take care of me when I get older and I'm unable to take care of myself? And then, not to mention, there's also the constant struggle of how to balance work along with family life. And even the worry and anxiety of wanting your kid to know the Lord and wanting him to trust in him and trusting God with his purposes there. So the point is clear. With old age comes change. And with change comes more anxiety. Now, if this is you... John's encouragement to you this morning is this. In the midst of this change, God is unchanging and will forever remain the same. In other words, he has been faithful to you thus far in your life, and he will continue to be faithful to you until the very end. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Remember, we are told Uh, from the author of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, one of of the beautiful things about growing older, and 
one of the things that I look forward to myself is that as you do so, your relationship with God begins to become more mature and sweet and even sentimental. Christ becomes to you like an old friend who has gone through everything with you. This is a different thing than being a young man or a woman who is passionate for God, right? As, as beautiful as that is, we've only been walking with him for eight years or nine years or less. It's a, this is a different sort of relationship with Christ. This is a relationship that has withstood the wear and tear of life. You have been through so much together. Times of incredible suffering and difficulties, yes, but also your best moments, times of great joy and growth. Through times of passionate pursuit of God, but also seasons of your life in which you grew stagnant, in which you were perhaps in rebellion, rebellion against God. As you grow older and begin to feel the burden and anxiety of maturity, let me encourage you to look back and to remember Christ's unchanging faithfulness in your life. Let me ask you this. When has Christ ever let you down? Has he ever once failed to be there for you or forgotten you? No, not once. So mothers and fathers, have you not seen his faithfulness proved true over and over again in your life? And if you have seen his faithfulness consistently true all throughout your life, then will he not also see you through to the very end? Write this down. Isaiah 46.4. Isaiah 46.4 says this. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear I will carry and I will save. I'm reminded of the words of a hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." I just kept coming into my mind as I, was, as I was studying this. And it goes like this, "'Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, "'how I've proved him over and over. "'Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, "'oh, for grace to trust him more. "'I'm so glad I learned to trust him.'" Precious Jesus, Savior and friend. And I know that he is with me and will be with me until the end. So mothers and fathers, as you grow into old age, be encouraged that the unchanging Savior is with you to the very end. And now we come to the third and final group of believers. The third point, encouragement for younger believers. Encouragement for younger believers. Now, as opposed to growing into maturity and old age, this season of life is a time which is characterized by high energy and idealism. You're super optimistic, you're ready to go, you're ready to take on the world. It's a time in which one's whole life appears to be before us, and the possibilities seem endless. Indeed, one thing I'd like to point out before we go on is that we need both of these groups in the life of the church. It's such a beautiful thing. Older believers, or first, younger believers, we need the maturity and the wisdom and of older, more mature Christians. 
And older, more mature believers need the youth and vigor and passion of younger believers. And so we see this, this beautiful connection here. And so in this section, John wants to encourage young believers with three things. And you can fill this out. The first thing is, he wants to encourage them that you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. The second thing he says is you are strong. And the third thing is the word of God abides in you. So the first and primary thing John wants young men to be encouraged by is this. He says you have overcome the evil one. And he wants us to truly get this because he repeats this twice for emphasis. So while this is certainly a season of life which is filled with high energy and vitality, it is also a season of life in which spiritual battles constantly rage within. Right? While these spiritual battles never quite go away with old age, they are the most intense at this stage in life. This is because with great energy also comes great passion and also powerful temptations. It may feel as if the things of the world, what John is later going to say in the next passage, he calls it the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it may feel like the things of the world are pulling our hearts away from God. Maybe you've been struggling with a particular temptation for years and feel as if you've gotten nowhere with it. And you begin to wonder, will I really be able to make it to the end? I don't know if I'll be able to last much longer under the weight of this temptation. Well, brothers and sisters, John's encouragement to you this morning is this. You have already overcome the evil one, and he will see to it that you are victorious in the end. Yes, you may feel as if you cannot continue on any longer, and you would be right, for in of ourselves, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. John is reminding us that in Christ, we have victory over sin and death, including every temptation that comes our way. And this is true of all believers, but we as, as young Christians, we certainly need to hear this. Indeed, John is reminding us that Christ, through his death and resurrection, as Colossians 2.15 says, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And furthermore, uh, later on in 1 John 4, 4, he says this, He who is in you, that is, that is Christ, is greater than he who is in the world. So in Christ, sin and death have been defeated. It, is no it no longer has any hold on our lives. We are not enslaved to it anymore. Yet, as true as that is, and as wonderfully true as that is, at the same time, Scripture is clear that we still have a very real enemy who is not to be trifled with. John calls him here the evil one. Paul says in Ephesians, he calls him the prince of the power of the air. And then Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 8, that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so the picture is this. Satan has been decisively defeated in Christ. He's done. He is defeated. And so is sin and death. But at the same time, 
He's going to go down with a fight. He's going down with a fight. Let me give you a, a helpful illustration of this. June 6th, 1944. Right, that day marks a very an important event in our nation's history. June 6th, 1944 is D-Day. This is the day in which thousands of Allied soldiers in World War II stormed the beaches of Normandy, France, and broke through the Nazis' line on the beach, and we got into continental Europe and established a foothold in mainland Europe. Now, historians say that at this moment, Hitler was, almost said Satan, Hitler was defeated. After D-Day, there was no way that he was going to be able to continue his fight. He had the Russians coming in from, from the east, and we were coming in from the bottom, and we were about to destroy Hitler. However, despite the fact that it was all over, that Hitler was completely defeated, it took another 11 months for the war to end. Hitler was not going to go down without a fight. He knew that there was no possible way that he could defeat the Allies, but because of his hatred for them, he was going to go down to the end. And so in a similar way, with Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan has been decisively defeated. He's done. He's crushed. Yet, he is not finally, ultimately defeated until Christ returns on the last day. And so then, until then, he will try to do as much damage as possible. This means that as Christians, we will still struggle with sin. In fact, John even wrote earlier, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1.8. But thanks be to God, we have the promise that sin will not overcome us if we are in Christ. For in Him, we have already overcome the evil one. Not only does John want young believers to know that we have overcome the evil one, but he also goes on to say, you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you. Christian, if you are struggling with sin and feel as if you cannot go on, John's message to you is you are strong. In him, you can go on. In him, you have victory. In Christ, you have the ability to overcome sin. Right? As Christians, we are never ultimately stuck in our sin. Never. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Now, this doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It may take months of hard struggle, vigilant prayer, and seeking the help of others. But God can give you the victory, and listen to this, has already even given you the victory in him. But notice where our strength comes from. Our strength doesn't come from ourselves. Right? Apart from Christ, we are weak. Don't think that you can conquer your sin apart from Christ. Don't think that you can do this alone. No, our strength comes because, as this says, the Word of God abides in us. Our strength comes from the Word of God. Now, by saying the Word of God, 
John is obviously, he's referring to the scriptures, to the whole Bible. But if you remember, John often refers to Jesus as the word of God. Christ is the word made flesh. So in other words, our strength comes from the word of God abiding in us. And when the word of God abides in us, we abide in Christ. And Christ abides in us. So let me ask you this. What is your scriptural intake like? What is your scriptural intake like? Are you abiding in God's word? Fathers, are you leading your family in this area of life? Are you leading by example and showing what it is to abide in God's word? Friend, let me tell you from experience that oftentimes the reason why we struggle with sin for so long is because we do not take advantage of the tools that God has offered us. I want you to picture this. Striving in our own strength in sin is like choosing to cut a two-by-four in half with a steak knife when you have an entire tool shed full of power tools at your disposal. That's going to take a long time. That's not going to work. I'm not a craftsman, but I I know that that's not going to work. (laughs) So, brothers and sisters, use the tools that God has given you and abide in his word. Abide in Christ. So be encouraged. God has given you victory over every sin and temptation, and he will see to it that the good work he started in you, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ. And thus concludes John's poem of encouragement to us. Little children, be encouraged that your sins are forgiven and you are loved by the Father. Fathers, be encouraged because you know Christ who was from the beginning and will continue to be faithful to the very end. And young men, be encouraged because you have overcome the evil one. You are strong and God's word abides in you, and no sin or temptation will overtake you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we can call you Father. Oh, Lord, thank you that even in our sin, you sent your Son to die for us and to bring us back into fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you for the words of encouragement that you offer to us in your word. Lord, I pray that these words that we heard this morning would sink deeply into our hearts, that you would give us victory over sin, that you would give us encouragement in moments of suffering, and that you would help us to enter into old age trusting in you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Amen.